In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is the staple of every Bond film that at some point, 007 shows up at HQ in order to sit with Q. Q is, stands for quartermaster. Because once James Bond is aware of what he's up against, he knows that he will need all the coolest, most sophisticated gadgetry that is available to that who is 007. And so there is that whole scene devoted to all those things that Q gives Bond to face what he's going to face because Q is the quartermaster and everything that he gives is everything that Bond will need. And that's cute. And it's a staple of every film. And it's all make-believe. Uh, the explosions are staged. Um, with maybe just a few exceptions, every stunt is done by a double. And in the end, wink, wink, Bond always prevails. That's how it works out. And it's a great story. And we enjoy the films. But it's not real. There's too much of what he faces that is actually maybe more common to real life. But we've been listening to a letter for a long while now. And last week, we introduced a theme that is perhaps the most difficult to hear in modern ears, and that is the idea that there might be darkness all around us. And a little darkness within us. And maybe more than a little. And the question is, what of it? And more importantly, what does God do for us? I hope you will not think me trivial in making the association, but God is a quartermaster. God is the ultimate cue. And he has come to furnish us with things that are real in light of the field that we're on. And that essentially marks the two points I want to make today. Last week we talked mostly about the field of battle that we're on. I need to say a little bit more about that. And then I want to say a lot more about what we've been furnished with in order to exist in that field. That's the nature of our task. It is the struggle that we face. And I hope that we might consider it and learn and be strengthened by it. So I wonder if you might hear the entirety of the passage again. And as we focus on the latter half of it, would you stand as we're in Ephesians chapter 6 once more? Ephesians 6, once again, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. The words may be given to me and the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the sobering word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. If you were not here last week, last week I talked a lot about the battlefield, and if you're curious about that, go back and you can get the cassette tape. I am, last week I focused a lot on making an argument for you to even consider the possibility that there might be darkness. This week I am not making an argument. I am assuming it. And if you need more grounding in that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that. I want to start with that place. But I want to start where Paul, I think, distills down for us what is the nature of the battlefield that we are on. And he says it, and we'll hear it again in verse 12. Listen. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is not saying you don't at all wrestle against flesh and blood. He did. You do. We all do. It's a thing. He is just saying don't ever underestimate what you are up against. If we reduce every struggle, every struggle to that which is material or mortal, you misunderstand where you are. And in many instances, you will underestimate what you are up against. And you have to be aware of what is there in order to know how to respond in kind. Let me put it very bluntly from something that Flannery O'Connor said a long time ago. She said this. Our salvation is played out with a devil. A devil who is not simply generalized evil, but an intelligence determined on its own supremacy. If you shake your head at that, that's fine. If there's part of you inside that goes, really? Go back and listen to last week. And there's a lot of you in this room that go, are you kidding me? How could you not believe that? And that's why Paul kind of rattles off this litany of words that are all supposed to be kind of essentially what we're up against in verse 12, right? Forces, authorities, rulers, powers, all the things like that. It's an unseen world that is still real, and we have to grapple with it. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've grown up in the church at all, it's possible that you've heard at least two words to kind of help orient you to an understanding of the world that Paul is painting here in the entirety of the New Testament, the whole Bible. And it's the word possess and the words oppress. You know, one is possessed, meaning they are overtaken by that which is not of themselves, but that which is of the spiritual forces of darkness. If you want to laugh at the, you know, the film The Exorcist or in the new Russell Crowe film The Pope's Exorcist, if you, laugh if you will. That's what we mean by possession and that which you have been overtaken. And then if you've grown up in the church for very long, I remember when I heard it and who I heard it from, the idea that if you're a Christian, you, it's impossible for you to be possessed, but you can be oppressed. And the difference is between being overtaken and being overwhelmed. That there is an active agency or influence that is operating in your world in some form or fashion to overwhelm you. 
I would like to offer you maybe a third word that has been helpful to me in my reading and in my study of this passage in recent weeks, and it comes from a guy named Leslie Newbegin, whom you've heard me mention before. He was a missionary to India for decades. He comes back to the West and says, and looks around and says, if there's any place that needs evangelism, it would be the West. You think all the problem is in other places. How about look under your own roof? And in his argument, in a wonderful chapter in a book called The Gospel and the Pluralist Society, he talks about those forces. He talks about those authorities. He talks about their rulers, and he tries to give an explanation or an account for what they are. And he speaks of it in this way. Their conflict is not against human beings. It is against the spiritual power that is, how shall we say it, beyond, behind, within, and above human beings. They meet us as embodied Invisible and tangible realities, people, nations, and institutions, and they are powerful. He is arguing for an understanding of the world in which there are people and institutions and cultures and nations that are influenced, but in large part they are insensible to the influence, they are unaware. It is different from talking about possession and oppression. It is this idea of people and nations and cultures embodying those forces, mostly unaware. They are real, they are unseen, and they are embodied. And, and he makes an important distinction there. When you use the word like embody, you are still saying that they're real, but you don't equate the person, the culture, the institution, and the nature with the force itself. I mean, it's ironic. We use the word, I don't know when it came into our parlance, the idea of the word demonizing, right? We're talking about demons here, but when you talk about demonizing somebody, you're, you're making a, an equivalence between the force and the, and the person or the nation itself. That's not what Leslie Newbegin is saying. Those entities can embody the forces, but they're not to be confused with the force itself. Now, all of that is out there, and you're, some of you that are visiting going, oh my gosh, I have stepped into the wrong room. Let me, let me kind of bring it down a little bit here from a very familiar example from Scripture itself. Jesus is out with his disciples. He's known to do that. And at some point, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to suffer, and he's going to die and he's going to rise again. And in Mark chapter 8, Peter hears that. And Peter, <laughs> he takes Jesus aside from everybody else. Like he's trying to, like, I want to protect your reputation, dude. And it says, Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, I don't know what the rebuke says. It's something like, uh, stop talking like that. Stop bringing the crowd down. Cut it out. It's not going to happen that way. And what does Jesus say? In Mark chapter 8, it makes sure that we know that what Jesus says to Peter is said loud enough that all the disciples would hear it. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, in that moment, does Jesus think that Peter is possessed of the devil, that he needs to drive a stake through his heart and exercise the demon like he does with the man that lives among the tombs three chapters earlier in Mark chapter 5? No. And you know, whatever extent that you might want to apply the word oppression in that moment, like, you can, it feels a little bit artificial. But in that moment, what is Peter doing? He is embodying the whispering of an adversary that says, you don't need to suffer, Jesus. 
You're better than that. You're bigger than that. You don't deserve that. You don't need to walk that path. And in that moment, Peter is embodying that force that is trying to knock Jesus off his path. That's embodiment. Is Peter aware of it? Is Peter walking around like a zombie? Jesus, you will not suffer. No! But to say that Jesus doesn't have to respond in that moment by calling him the very thing that opposes him, by decreeing it, by declaring it, yes, that's what he's doing. That's the field that we're on. And, and the, you know, the $64,000 question is, all right, well, how do I respond to that field? Look, th- that's worth its own sermon. That's why there are books. But let me borrow one more thought from Leslie Newbegin to maybe kind of set a tone for what we have to say in the rest of the sermon. He says this, evangelism, which is politically and ideologically naive, and social action, which does not recognize the need for conversion from false gods to the living God, God, living God, both fall short of what is required. If you think, I just need to tell people about Jesus, and not aware of all the structures and the systems that are behind everything, you can. And if you think, if I just enact enough legislation and vote all the right people in office and, and they just have to parrot or, or parody the words that I might, or the convictions that I might have, and that'll do it, friends, look backward. How's it gone with either of those approaches? It's more than that. The devil's in too deep, to borrow a phrase. That's the field we're on. With what have we been furnished? And if I might say here by way of preface on the front end of talking about the whole armor of God, what you're going to be tempted to do right now for the remainder of the sermon is to think that Jesus is just speaking to you or Paul just speaking to you as an individual. He is. But if there were ever a set of words that had to appeal to a whole community, a whole family of believers, this is it. I'm glad you are steeped in Western individualism. It speaks to your dignity and your creativity and all those sorts of things. But if you think that maps well into what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you are wrong. So let's talk about it. What has he furnished us with? He talks about it as the whole armor of God. The literal word there in Greek is panoplia, a panoply, a whole range of things. It's a whole collection and, and, and that's why if he says it twice, the whole armor of God, he's not saying, well, you can pick and choose. Like when Bond sees Q and Q rattles off all these things that Bond is going to use, Bond says, yeah, I'm going to need that, but this is, this is not going to be okay. I don't need this. Q would say, you pompous man, I don't care how much you can bench press. You need everything I'm giving you. So what has God furnished to us in this fight? What's in the background of this whole passage is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 51. This is God's armor for the sake of those who submit unto him in all things. What is that armor? Let's go buy it piece by piece here, but let's sort of tease out what we can, what it talks about, what it means, how do you use it. The first two are kind of a matched set. And what they both have in common is, I think, in part, what does it mean? What is produced in those to borrow the metaphor from this whole series, what is, it, what is produced in those for whom the song of the gospel has really worked deeply in you? What does it look like if the promise that before the foundations of the earth you were set aside 
to be his beloved child and to become his by what Jesus has done for you in his blood such that your future and his favor are secure forever. That's the gospel. That's good news. And that's meant to work deeply in us so that it affects every relationship and everything that we're afraid of and every decision that we have to make. When that moves deeply, what does it produce in us? Well, I think the first two pieces of armor speak to that. First, the belt of truth. Uh, the word there for belt is the thing that every, you know, holds everything up, right? You know, look, um, I've never been in a battle like that. I can imagine it would be hard in itself, but imagine if your pants fall down in the middle of battle. Like, oh gosh, stop, um, I'm fighting you. And there it is, it's the belt. It's what holds everything up, and he calls it the belt of truth. Jesus in John 17 says, Father, sanctify them in the truth that your word is truth. That there is a sense in which you have been awakened to the truth of Jesus. That you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 8. When that truth is at work in you, it produces something in you. That you love the truth. That you desire to walk in integrity. And you grieve at every moment. You know that you're walking in a lie. When you walk in truth with that belt around you, that love for his truth, the truth of who he is, you are persuaded of that. And I think Paul is saying when you are persuaded of his truth, it is not just an intellectual assent to what you've learned, it is a form of protection. When that truth has worked its way into you, it is more than knowledge. It is protection, like a belt that holds everything up that you know how to fight. Match set, the breastplate of righteousness. You know what a breastplate is? It protects the vitals here. You want to live? You want to fight another day? You need heart. You need lungs. You need your viscera. All that's there. The breastplate does it. And he calls it the breastplate of righteousness. Once again, what is that righteousness? That you have his. You weren't righteous. You were an enemy. You were a sinner. And not only has he given him yourself, given, him, given you himself, he's given you his righteousness. And what is that meant to produce in you? His righteousness in you. Romans 8. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That his holiness is not only understood, it is loved. It is cherished. And we long to walk in it. And he is saying, the love for his righteousness, for his holiness, that is your protection. It is not simply a standard by which you are measuring yourself day to day. That's not the point. His righteousness that he's given to you, that then means to become part of you and part of your heart, part of your soul, that becomes protection against the schemes of the devil. If you think obedience by faith is of no use to you and is only for the super believers, you are wrong and you are tying both hands behind your back. You are taking off the breastplate and going, come at me. And the, you know, the forces are saying, oh, this will be fun. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, they go together. And they mean to communicate what is proven in you, what is what, is, what becomes true and baked into your system. Look, um, Better Call Saul. Series as an offshoot of Breaking Bad. 
It's about a, it's about a shady lawyer that's always trying to stay one step ahead of everybody that's fighting after him. He's brilliant. But really, the sub-theme of the whole series is about regret. And what do you do with it? And there's an interesting sort of um, storytelling device that shows up in different scenes without explanation, but every once in a while, you'll see somebody holding or reading a copy of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Such that in this moment, when these two dudes are carrying $7 million of money that is not theirs across the border, and they only, read, they only find a little bit of water along the way, they think they're going to die. They sit down, and this little philosophical moment unfolds where Jimmy, otherwise known as Saul, asks his grizzled former cop, Mike, a question. If you could go back in time, when would you go? And Mike, without batting an eye, says, March 10th, 1981. She says, why that date? Because, Mike says, that was the day I took my first bribe. And that, by his own words, is a day that set him on a road to make him not only able and tempted to commit other offenses along the way, but now has enslaved him into a world and into a darkness for which he has no escape and which he can only hope to survive if he can. And in that moment, he is wistful for the day he wishes he could go back and start again and make a different choice. If you think truth and righteousness don't matter, listen to its opposite. The choice not, the choice not to work, walk in truth and righteousness now makes him vulnerable. Walking in truth and in righteousness is your protection. What's the third thing? The third piece of armor? He says, shoes for your feet. Oh, for my feet. Thanks, Paul. Shoes for my feet. Which he kind of expresses in kind of, it's kind of a clunky translation, based on the readiness with the gospel of peace. In the background of that moment is inevitably what we hear in the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who publishes peace. What is that? What are those shoes? Why associated with the gospel of peace? I will tell you, and you'll hear more of this on Easter morning. The gospel means your peace. Your peace with God. Which allows itself in as it works its way into your heart to learn a new reason for peace with one another and a peace within your own troubled, frail, fearful heart. A peace where you are no longer fearful of everything that you have failed in. A peace in which you are no longer enslaved to some sort of impulse for which you have absolutely no explanation for, where you are always striving for something in order to prove something. Don't tell me you don't know what that means. We have peace. And that comes in the gospel. And that is its own form of protection against everything that would assail you in that fear. But I think this, these shoes, this gospel of peace is actually... There's something more to that than just knowing that you have peace with God. It is Paul's buddy Peter in 1 Peter 3 where he instructs every believer this. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Have a few words 
that if anybody asks you, why do you live in hope? Did you see the carnage this week? How can you still have hope even in your tears? Just a few words. I think Paul was trying to tell us that one form of protection is knowing that you're at peace with God, but what bonds that protection, what galvanizes it further, is actually having a few words to explain that hope if anybody is ever curious. Look, every one of you in this room has someone or something that you love, and if I asked you about it, you would be effusive. You would tell me till the cows come home until I have to say, hey, really, I gotta go. You would do that because you love it, because you cherish it. I read this book in college. I wish I read it a long time ago. Mortimer Adler, he said, it's a book called How to Read a Book. And he says, anybody that tells you, I understand something, I just can't put it into words. Um, Mortimer Adler is saying, the only people you're fooling right now is your own self. And you say to yourself, I'm not eloquent. I could never do a sermon, or I could never do any of this. I never stand in front of people. That's not what he's saying. Can you come up with a few words in your own voice? to explain who Jesus is to you and why you live in hope with him, that's its own form of protection. It is a piece of armor. It is not just something that people do for you. It is something that you internalize yourself with just a few words in your own way. Now, so far, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the gospel of peace that are our feet, that kind of, maybe there's a part of you that goes, wow, it's kind of like on me a lot. Like, am I in this alone? Is like, I just kind of put all this on, and I, am I really like Bond? I'm really defenseless. I'm like, put the, mm, relax. Because the next two are here to talk to you about something that is deeper, even though what we've heard already is deep. When he comes to talking about breastplates and shoes, he then gets to the point in which we talk about taking up the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let me, let me show you what he means by the kind of shield there. It's not like the sort of King Arthurian, the round thing that might be big. He's talking about something like this. This is a Roman phalanx, and what they're holding are shields that look like doors. They're called scutum. And I want you to stare at that picture for just a second. Not only because it illustrates the kind of shield that he's talking about, but look, friends, if you think it is just a formality that these people stood up here so that they can be on a spreadsheet, so it's a little easier for us to email them on a list, I want you to remember this picture. Because one shield is protective. That kind of phalanx, huh, Something on a different order. You're more than a crowd. And if you've come here just to be a crowd, you are already tying at least one hand behind your back. This is what he envisions. What is that shield? Those shields, probably uh, not as well represented here, but it's the shield that would have almost a leather um, Thing tacked on the front of it that they would then douse in water such that when flaming darts of evil would come on you they'd be extinguished by the by the moistened wet leather on the front of the shield so okay there's the metaphor why does he call it a shield of faith what are the flaming darts of the evil one? Oh, the list is long and distinguished what does he like to do he likes to lie he's the father of lies he is a deceiver he is the one that likes to condemn. 
and seduce. He is the one that comes after you with all those things and whispers in your ear, essentially, you have no business here. Why are you even alive? What are you even doing here? It would be best that you left and that you were not. To borrow the line from Radiohead, you're a weirdo. You're a creep. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. It is the kind of whisperings that you and I can easily believe that is meant to push us away. Friends, the Lord will rebuke us when we need it. But that rebuke will never be to cast you off. It will always be to draw you in, to hold your hand collectively, metaphorically, in his hands and say, what are you doing? I love you. You are mine. The shield of faith is the one to ward off those kinds of lies. It is those, the shield of faith that is meant to Every time you start to feel condemned or you feel like, I'm just going to wander into the wasteland and pretend I was never here, the shield of faith is there to say, stop. Because the shield of faith is really there to defend you against every attempt the devil would come at you to say, your faith is a joke. It is a lie. It is a wish projection. Run. It is not worth the effort. Chad Scruggs lost his daughter this week. And he's not the only one. And there are families in our community, as you've already heard, that have lost children recently. But not so long ago, Chad Scruggs preached a sermon on John chapter 11 when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. And I would like you to hear 40 seconds of Chad's own voice. One of the most remarkable things about this story, it always gets me, is that knowing exactly what he's about to do, Jesus sits down and does what? He weeps. You see that a strong confidence in the end of the story does not undo or justify the absence of grief in the middle. A mature faith adds its tears to the sadness in our world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn all the while not losing confidence in how that sadness will eventually be overcome in him. He gave that sermon not so long ago to encourage faith in others, and now he is having to apply that faith to himself. And God forbid any of us are ever in the same circumstance that he and other families are today. But the shield of faith, look, faith is a gift. Faith is the conviction of things, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Paul has told us in Ephesians 2, faith is a gift. But if faith is to be associated with a shield, then faith is also applied. And what Chad and Jada and others are having to do today are apply faith to their moment. And so must we at different times for different reasons. So that we will not be afraid. So that as the psalmist says, though the mountain give way in the heart of the sea, I will not fear. Or as Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10, 
Do not fear the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Or as Paul says in another letter, I, I will not fear because I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. He is applying the story and that's why it's fitting he's talking about the story of salvation. And that's why Paul talks about the helmet of salvation. That which, which we must give our mind to, that we must bring to our attention. It is that helmet. It is that place. Faith comes to us in the form of a story. And I will be honest with you, when it comes to the word of God, which is the sword he speaks of here, the only offensive weapon that is spoken of in this harmer, there are days in which I will hear the text and it will be water off a duck's back in my experience. And there are other days where I am stopped in my tracks and I am held. And I think that's why Paul rounds out his discussion here by talking about one offensive weapon that you have, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, where the Spirit himself does something in our consideration of that word in order to bring its reality home, to persuade us of its truth and to persuade us of its strength. What is Chad doing in that moment but bringing the word unto the voices and ears of others that they might believe it? What is he going to have to do for his own heart? What do we have to do for our own hearts is to use that word. At some point, the word of God has to be more than just something that you hear me talk about on a Sunday. It has to be more than an object of study. It has to become something that you wield. And you can't wield anything that you don't know. And if you are resting upon me to make slides for you every week rather than have your own text, I am not here to spoon feed you and you don't want to be spoon fed. If it is a weapon, then it has to become more than just a word. And that word is activated by what the Spirit does in us. And the ironic thing for the remainder of the passage is that Paul talks about prayer. But he doesn't call it, he doesn't associate it with a piece of armor. He doesn't say like the chain mail of prayer. And that's weird, right? Because he talks so much about prayer, about pray for me, pray for all the saints, ask everything you can, do it. That's curious why he doesn't associate with a piece of armor. And I think, here's a guess, it's as good as any I can come up with. All the verbs, stand, put on, take up, wear, that's what prayer is. Prayer is the putting on. Prayer is the taking up. Prayer is the wearing. And I'm all bad, we're all bad at it. Prayer begets prayer, and when you give it up, you, you lose sight of it, and you think, eh, isn't that just like eating fiber? I know I should, but I don't. And that's because... Maybe we don't think of it as something that we absolutely desperately need in the force of the battle that we find ourselves in. It is how we exercise truth and righteousness and faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. That's why he asks. That's why he goes there. David French, in the wake of what happened in Nashville, who lives in Nashville, said this about prayer in the context of everything that's around us. He said this, For the faithful believer, prayer is not a substitute for action, 
it's a prerequisite for action. It grounds us before we move to serve others. It grounds us before we speak in the public square. I do not for a moment think that prayer is the only response to tragedy, but for me and millions of others, it's a necessary response. That's the context we find ourselves in. That's the reason we understand what prayer is and what it is not. 